St Andrew's Night, November, uh, the Supreme Court Verdict Night, November, Burns Night, January, and Brexit Anniversary Night, tonight, January. Um, in an independent country, let's change all our significant dates to be in June. But meantime, let's get out there. Today's podcast goes into detail on how to join the Edinburgh Rally and Torchlit Procession tonight. Please come. Um, or how to put posters in your window, light them up and have lights on for Scotland's return to Europe as an independent country. Uh, we talk also about the enduring damage being done by Brexit and strangely not of any interest at all, it seems, to most of the mainstream press. Nor um, it would appear the news that uh, the IMF has downgraded forecasts such that Britain is now the worst performing economy in the G7 and worse even than Russia. How is this not dominating the headlines? We look also at the trans row uh, and the prison's stushy and the uh, discussion over the true origins of the Scotch bonnet. Those are the headlines. Now for the podcast. Hi chums and welcome to this week's Leslie Riddick podcast. And as the gale blows in, I think it's from the west right across Scotland, it is January the 31st, the second anniversary of... Uh, the third anniversary. I is it? Everyone's getting this. It's 2020 that it happened and 2023 is now. Yeah, oh, that, that's the thing I haven't figured out. It's 2023. That, that's it. I lost it. Oh, oh, would that I could lose a whole year of my life like that <laughs> and go back to being a mere 70 as opposed to running up to 71. But yes, it's the third anniversary uh, today and um, it's been marked by this uh, tremendous uh, procession. Lights on. Well, let's, let's face it, it's being marked by the rest of the media ignoring Scotland totally. I mean, right. <laughs> It's honestly, I just about blew a gasket this morning listening to Radio 4 and, and pretty much Radio Scotland. But Radio 4, uh, you know, managed to have two Tories on um, sort of discuss both of them, in fact, obviously forced to support Bre Brexit, one of them a long term supporter. And, um, you know, so that's one sh shade of political opinion, one country represented one outcome, as in Brexit's fine and it'll all work out in the end and we all just have to sort of grin and bear the little difficulties and there are hardly any anyway. And that really, that is a debate. Um, so, you know, then in the, in the midst of that, uh, Michelle Hussein popped up to say, oh, actually, um, the Beeb is going to have a special Brexit debate tonight at eight o'clock after eight o'clock news. Uh, the four panellists were listed just right this second, I can't quite remember who they are because I was listening just to hear whether or not the, the nations of, of Britain that had voted to remain were in any way represented. And once again, they're not. And so, I mean, this is the reality of it is that, you know, play this back in again, um, back into where we were with the Supreme Court verdict, which is that, you know, we are not in an equal union. Just that one told us that we're not in an equal union. We can even leave. But this is not an equal union. We are nations in a supposed union. And the nations of Scotland and Northern Ireland vote to remain. Northern Ireland's getting a deal. In fact, Northern mm -hmm. Ireland has been told by the uh, European Union that um, should it should it decide to uh, reintegrate with, with the rest of Ireland, um, it will automatically become... Uh, an EU member well, automatically, obviously, because it'll be part of Ireland. There's there's just nothing for Scotland. And that's why uh, we have we're getting out tonight 
um, to, to mark this anniversary, because for everyone who's listening here and, and uh, supports independence, the same problem pertains, which is that we are essentially invisible. Now, that's part of the deal that comes basically from being from growing up and being British. But some of it is because we, we have not made enough of a stir. It's going to be difficult to outdo the weather today in terms of stirring. Yeah. <laughs> but um, I was listening this morning uh, to the, the great news that there are finally uh, women and girls allowed into the Lerwick yes. Ophelia. I mean, the other bits, the other Ophelias around Shetland have been enlightened for a lot longer, but not the final bastion. Um, so there was a there was a question there about the weather, because, you know, if it's a bit blowy down here and actually the, the weather forecast for Edinburgh is not too bad at all. But by gum, it's pretty grim for Shetland. And the last they were interviewing said there has never been a cancellation for weather in the history of Opelia. So I thought, well, let's take a bit of spirit from that. All of us, you know, yeah. we, we definitely need to get out there. But this is the point. This is the whole point that of behind time for Scotland, because if we are not going to start rattling the cage a bit, we're already, you know, already the BBC and the, the, the UK media have sort of tuned out and have created a narrative that's only about whether this is marginally awkward for the for the Tories. That's yeah. all this is about. And of course, when you chuck in the news from the IMF today, that Britain is the only major economy now, you know, is in the worst position uh, of any major economy. In fact, including Russia, uh, we're the only G7 country that will actually see our economy shrink this year. That is pulling it into, you know, yes, that's fair enough. Let's discuss that. But let's discuss the fact that there is one country that got it right from the from the outset that still wants to see change and can only see it now through independence. I mean, to be fair to Good Morning Scotland, they had um, John Curtis on and he was making that point, actually, that in, in Scotland, it's very much more become a debate about how Brexit has morphed into supporting the independence uh, movement. And he had statistics on how much, pretty much all Remain voters have be essentially become independent supporters. Not all are, you know, we'd be sitting at 62 mm -hmm. percent. But that, you know, so that was a reasonable kind of analysis. And the, the National today have really done an amazing amount. They've done the research that other media outlets, better supported outlets have not done. Um, and they've looked at every aspect of, of how Brexit has actually impacted on Scotland. So well done to them. But the point remains, that's why we in advance organised this uh, lights on rally and procession by gum. Uh, with torchlights, uh, I mean, there. It's, it's again. It sort of slightly rankles that you're listening, as and it is an historic moment that that uh, women are allowed into the the Lurwick up Helia. But the the kind of tag into that is that there'll be a torchlit procession with, you know, with hundreds of people tonight. Well, there'll be another one with hundreds of people. Yes. But it will get absolutely hee-haw coverage from the BBC most likely, um, and nonetheless. I think STV are there. We've got an Italian uh, crew coming. That's the ones I know about. So um, I really hope everybody just wrap up warm and get out there. You know, we, the, the torchlit procession starts from the top of Holyrood Park um, up beside the Pollock Halls of Residence kind of entrance. It's starting there, gathering from five, leaving at 5.30, walking down the Galloping Glen, as I understand it's called, at the side of the Arthur seat. 
uh, down to the um, parliament where the uh, rally itself will begin at six o'clock sharp with Alan Smith and Lorna Slater. Um, lots of European speakers, good music, and it will be over by eight o'clock at the absolute out, outside, <laughs> um, you know, in case anybody's worrying about getting back home. Great. Uh, some interesting speakers as well. You've got Alan Smith, Jim Fairley, Lorna Slater and others. Yeah, um, there's there's a there's there's quite there's a, a whole set of speakers but one uh, one is portuguese one is originally from mali um then grew up in france now in new scott um so yes there's and we've got andrea uh, pisaro and nina yetter who are the italian and german academics who set up europe for scotland yeah. which um has done such great work i mean these are the guys that got those solidarity rallies going in the supreme court verdict day stuffy um, they're also the people for whom Val McDermott has done quite a lot. And she has come up with a, a wee video, which is also running online. She would have been a speaker tonight, but she had already got a gig booked elsewhere. Um, and she made a very powerful point about the three months she spent in New Zealand, looking from afar at Scotland and comparing these two utterly like in every other respect countries other than New Zealand's independent, Scotland's not, and going down the economic toilet with um, the rest of the UK. So, you know, so there's, there's, yeah, so those two, Andrea and Nina, are on a train, even as we speak, coming up the road from Oxford uh, to speak tonight at this rally. So I hope this makes anybody who's kind of having wee, you know, any wee swithers, Denny Swither, <laughs> come on. Yeah. If the lass is in Larwick and the... Uh, the, the Europe for Scotland too can come, you know, can get out in, in any kind of weather and it shouldn't be as bad in Edinburgh at all, then I hope we'll see everybody tonight because we've got 200 torches sold. That'll be enough to make a really spectacular walk. And I hope that we get the same numbers that we get uh, for the rally that we got uh, for the Supreme Court because it's we just have to keep marking stuff. If we don't, nobody else cares. And they conclude that we don't care. Yeah, I mean, a couple of things here. I mean, when we spoke about it, I was always I always thought it was a smart political move by the SNP to focus on Brexit and people were saying, oh, it's taking attention away from independence. But I actually think it was a really smart political move when we spoke about it at the time. I think it's proven to be correct, as John Curtis has suggested. The other thing about it is that Stephen Flynn referred to the conspiracy of silence when he was referring specifically to the Labour Party and the Conservative Party. But it does go beyond that into the broader area, as you said, the media. The conspiracy of silence that Brexit is here and the, the, the silence that's being imposed on Scotland, you're absolutely right in that. I, I found it because, I mean, separate from uh, separate from the, the national, I did a I did a wee bit of digging in terms of the Brexit impact that, that, that has gone completely, completely unreported, I think, as far as right across a whole range of media. And uh, the Centre for European Reform did a thing, and I love this title, the, the doppelganger method where they selected countries that can, economies closely matched the UK pre-Brexit. So they, they created what they call a counterfactual UK that didn't leave the EU. And they estimated that GDP was 5.5% lower than the doppelganger, investment 11% lower, goods trade 7% lower. And one of the things that IMF said that was that uh, the reason, one of the major reasons why there was significant uh, uh, 
questions being raised about the economic viability of the UK this year, even though they claimed it was going to get better next year, was because of tax rises. And there have been significant tax rises. And what they did was they said if there, if there had been no Brexit, that would have meant 40 billion higher tax revenues. And what was Rishi Sunak's tax rises back in March? 46 billion. So there you have it. What you've actually got within that is an almost exact match, you know, between 40 million, 46 billion between what we would have gained in tax revenues in Doppelganger UK that didn't leave that didn't leave the EU and what we've got now. And I mean, it's just it's it's an economic meltdown. And uh, and that's been kind of matched in the fact in the, 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 the since October, the Labour Party, despite actually not saying or doing very much, has gained a lead over the Conservatives in terms of economic competence, which has gone between five to eight percent over that time period. Yeah, it is just it's extraordinary, actually, how much this sort of news, economic bad news doesn't make news. I mean, that which I just sort of slightly ran through there. You know, the earlier thing about the IMF's predictions, the UK will be the only G7. And that is now, uh, you know, we have got a worse functioning economy than Russia. That's what that says. And yet that just gets sort of skipped over, you know, like, hey, we're not even really interested in that. Um, You know, the the news that... uh, that groceries are now, I can't remember yeah. what the inflation is, but it's, I can't, you know, because it's, is it 17%? Is it 17%. 36%? You know, yeah. it's unbelievable. And yet people just say it. Everyone kind of nods sagely, oh, yes, that'll cause some problems. You better get your, your kind of loyalty cards out in supermarkets because that's the only way you're going to get cut price anything. You you watch the TV with kind of medics saying, you know, paramedics saying in ambulances that when they finally get to pick people up, some people are actually so cold that they're taking them in because they know if they stay in their houses, they'll die. I mean, it's extraordinary what we can just, you know, we, 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 we can just skip all that somehow. That doesn't seem to be centre stage of any, you know, the alarm bells are not run, ringing in, in a way that you would expect when we're experiencing utter meltdown. And, you know, some of that might be um, the distraction of, of various other emotive subjects both in Scotland and elsewhere the lack of sometimes a particular alternative from the Labour Party actually the opposition in a sense is out on the streets of England particularly today with a massive set of strikes by all sorts of unions some of them here as well but mostly down the road we're sitting in you know the weather is in blooming turmoil today and it's kind of like it's reflecting you know the state of where Britain is at and yet People are sitting sagely, kind of stroking their metaphorical beards and and kind of having little kind of hee hee. Well, I'm looking here at um, at the normally very reliable uh, sort of email thing that gets sent around by by politicos, the London Playbook. Mm-hmm. Um, their reference to Brexit and you know they, these guys are absolutely generally impeccable and and getting up in the middle of the night practically to write these things but their 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 sort of lead off thing about happy brexit day is that there's less fun for rhinos because brexit is making it harder for them to breed in european zoos right you know it, it this this is what when you get to a stage where you're actually having to sell novelty stories you know like that to try to you think interest people I mean, what, where the heck have we actually reached in terms of anyone having some 
proper economic analysis of where we are. And that was a tremendous, you know, set of figures that you came up with. But it's extraordinary how little the public domain seems to want to spend time on any of this and analyze it. Um, I was looking in a column, I, I'm back writing columns again, and uh, really? wrote one for the Herald, and uh, was was writing there about the the de- damage that's been done by the really crap deal that was struck by, with New Zealand, particularly last year. Um, and that one, I had really not realised quite how bad it was, but it basically allows um, essentially a deluge of lamb and beef imports from New Zealand to here. Scottish farmers have got lots of worries about the kind of pesticides and various other, not so much pesticides, but chemicals that are allowed and just the standards and whatever. But there we are. Now, the British government has agreed that 12,000 tonnes of New Zealand beef can come into the UK. 12,000 tonnes. That is four times the total allowed into the whole of the EU. So that's that's the flood of basically imports that's going to come in. And that's because the EU deals that we could have been part of, that we were part of, uh, always play in protection for the domestic market. So, you know, there the EU is taking care of EU members, farmers in any deals it does, whereas Britain just kind of, as usual, just went in, looked for a couple of headline. Well, in fact, to be really honest, just wanted a deal. Because by that stage, you know, all they needed to have was that the oven ready deals were beginning to flood in Obviously, not the big one. You know, we're, we're, if we ever get one with the US, you can mark the calendar that day. But in the meantime, New Zealand had us essentially over a barrel. And not only are we from from now, from this year onwards, going to see four, you know, four times more beef, New Zealand beef in the UK than the whole of the EU will allow as imports. Um the, the the pleas for some sort of protection to the, the trade minister of the time fell on such deaf ears that actually all limits on imports. So like, you know, a complete free for all will happen in 15 years time. So by then there just won't be, you know, there will be absolutely no control. If these guys obviously are still in business and, you know, if Labour do something different, FFF, mm-hmm. but their intentions are to let um, basically British farmers and Scottish farmers in the main. And when you're looking at Scottish farmers, those will be a lot of hill farmers when you're looking at livestock. They can just go to the wall. They can go swivel along with the scallop farmers who went out of business right on Brexit and all sorts of food producers who can then join all the people reported, I think, can't remember if it was the the Herald or the National today, um, in restaurants and cafes who can't get staff and are going out of business I mean, come on. What what more does it? Why do people think this is not interesting? Because, it, you know, is it just that we've all got so weary and dinned down? In which case, let's get our blooming heads up, because this is what our lives are about. This is why our children will leave this country. You know, that's all our lives are about. So come on, we've got to get these issues back up the, the flagpole And we've got to argue them through politically right to the end destination, which is that no Scottish government of any complexion, and I mean what I'm saying here, would ever have gone ahead with the Brexit that the British government so nonchalantly put through. And if that is not a good enough motivation to get yourselves 
out tonight and if you can't get out to Edinburgh get a blinking copy of the National because they've got a poster get it in the windows put your fairy lights from Christmas back on them take a picture flood the blinking social media with it because we need to get we're in a campaign maybe nobody's start you know fired the starting gun yet but we will be in a campaign so Let's behave as if we're in one. We don't need mummy to tell us that we're kind of, you know, that the go button was hit a couple of weeks ago. We're in it. We're in it. And we have significant dates when things happen. And around them, we have to focus all our arguments and and energies to create a different narrative to the one that's just dinning us dun and and rendering us inert, which is not, you know, this is not what we need. We need perky, upbeat, optimistic uh, in our in our natures, we need to get going to be able to make this country what it what it can be. So <clears throat> anyway, folks, get your chins up and get your wellies on for tonight. Yeah. And, and if people are needing any more motivation, what I did was I remember we spoke last week about the business for Scotland graphic showing the, the, the changes in GDP. I went and had a look at the latest updated figures and the top 20 GDP per capita, 15 of them fewer than 10 million population. The UK is at number 26 with uh, $49,000 per annum. Yep. And then you go up and you've got Finland above us, Sweden above us, Denmark above us, Norway, of course, Norway, Norway's six with $79,000 per annum, you know, with all that oil there. And as we said, here's the kicker. If anybody wants any other economic reasons, Ireland, third GDP in the world, $107,550 per annum. That's over a double the GDP per capita of the UK. And that's without any of Scotland's resources, any of them. And they're still in the EU, you know. And always remember the SNP put forward the compromise deals, the Norway plus. They were beaten down, beaten down, beaten down and in, in the UK Parliament. And what we finished up was the hardest of hard Brexits that we've all just now got to accept. And I and the Liberal Democrats are no longer a remain party, a rejoined party. The Labour Party are no longer a rejoined party. And they're going to follow because of their fear of the Red Wall. They're going to plough that Brexit roar. And we're... But the puzzle about it all is, you know, if this was true, why are 55% of the whole yeah. UK saying they want to rejoin? If this is true that, you know, there's just a solid Brexit majority, then where's the blinking public celebrations for the third anniversary of Brexit? You know, where are all these brave boys when it comes to actually putting their heads up now and claiming, you know, if if you broke it, you own it. Right. So where's Nigel Farage's big party? Where's Boris's celebration? You know, there's nobody out there celebrating the third anniversary of Brexit, of Independence Day. That's all gone. So, I mean, given that nobody, you know, there's no great sort of celebratory thing. And actually, you know, when I was looking at the column, I hadn't really realised that there's already been an attempt to celebrate Britain's Independence Day. It was the unboxed festival, which fell so appallingly flat on its face. It was meant to get 66 million people for the 120 million quid that was flung into it. So it's going to get 66 million people coming to an assortment of arts events all over the UK. 
the arts people begged Boris Johnson not to put money into, you know, one-off things, but to actually put 120 million quid into supporting existing arts venues, especially after COVID and everything? Nah, because it's all about the bling and the headlines and all that sort of stuff. So 120 million goes into this unboxed festival. 66 million people are supposed to be going to come. How many turned up? 238,000, which is, I mean, somebody did the, it's a lesser, not point something percent of what it was meant to have. And is now being investigated by the National Audit Office for its level of mismanagement. Um, I mean, not helped by Jacob Rees-Mogg christening it the, 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 the festival of Brexit, which is as soon as it became that. And there's the puzzle again. If this is such a great, you know, crowd pleaser um, in, in England, then why would calling something the festival of Brexit turn it into an absolute card carrying guaranteed loss making turkey? You know, this, 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 this is an extraordinary thing here and just the amount to, to which people are ready to just give up the ghost of an argument um, on this question of Brexit. And it, it's sitting around the, the emotional pull of taking back control. If you're, it's not even, I think, so much just the words about Brexit anymore. It's, it's a narrative about why Britain is screwed. Mm. No. And if you're not brave enough to get in there, and that's what the Labour Party aren't, you know, they're not brave enough to get back in there and, and create a different explanation for why Britain is now absolutely the weakest economy of Europe because they're going to have to get into tackling the complete inequality, the laissez-faire, deregulated sort of Singapore on the Thames stuff, which is going to make them sound like, oh, whisper it, Jeremy Corbyn. Yeah. And they can't go there. So they they remain stuck. They can't actually get into a proper analysis of how, you know, centuries of elitism, but certainly decades of it, fueled by these I mean, ugh, charlatans, OK, like Jacob Rees-Mogg that leads Brexit and then moves his money to yeah. Ireland for safety. Good move on his part. And, you know, and brazens it out. You know, the guy's still there. He's happily, it would seem that one projection of the next election sees him losing his seat, which I've got to say would be a bit of a whoop whoop <laughs> moment. But. What, what are we going to get if we can't actually call a spade a spade on a whole stack of counts with Labour? And that's what is at the heart of all of this. If people find Brexit boring, then Brexit is a key to, essentially, the lies about why Britain is not great. Yeah. Ah, well, I mean, because I mean, it, even despite all, because that's exactly what Nicola Sturgeon said in her interview on the News Agents podcast was the fact that what, what you're being offered is you've got the Tories and you've got Tory light now, and that's maybe a bit of an exaggeration, but it is in terms of Brexit. It's exactly that. Oh, we're going to accept Brexit, we're, but we're going to come up with these unspecified greater relationships with them, but not join the single market or the customs union yet. There they are. They're they're ahead in the polls. I mean, I think it's it's 66 percent reckon it's time for a change. 40 percent of 29 Tory voters think it's time for change. They're now showing Starmer, a more capable prime minister, uh, 39 percent up from 33 and Sunak down from 41 percent to 35 percent. You know, and Labour, as I said, showing themselves 
to be in the lead in terms of economics, but yet they do not have the courage. You know, they're, that, they're so fearful that they're continually triangulating themselves. And the narrative that's that's coming out here, there have been two strands to it, one of which uh, is the fact that the, this could be a 1992 moment. Now, I think you and I and some of our some of our listeners will remember 1992, where it was presumed that Neil Kinnock was going to storm in. John Major had replaced Margaret Thatcher in, I think it was about the October, November of 1990, when Thatcher was at her most unpopular. And he came in, John Major came in and uh, changed the fortunes. But one of the things that happened at that point was that Labour did have a massive lead. But uh, sorry, that um, uh, Labour did have a massive lead. But what happened was within two months, Major had turned that round to get a Tory lead over Labour, 46 to 43%. And they were neck and neck thereafter. And it was all about the economy. And I think that one of the focuses that they've got on here is that Sunak is trying to stress he's a different kind of person with uh, his bringing up professionalism and ethics and getting things sorted out. And I don't, I don't think it obviously isn't working. And the Nadim Zahawi uh, issue and its uh, ramifications even though it's being uh, uh, put out as it's, this is long Boris, I think is an endemic condition contained within Conservative Party that is right throughout it with the spivs and bother boys and tax evaders that constitute the current Conservative Party. Yeah, and and I think you know most of the public I think just are just looking at that now and just thinking that you know there's a point strange there's a point where you can get away with blue murder and then there's a point where suddenly it just looks as crap as it always was and i mean of course you've got to take scots out of the equation as ever in all these comments because generally speaking we just take we price that all in tories are crap that's why we don't vote for them you know glory be um but looking at the rest of, you know, of Britain and England particularly, uh, yeah, that that's a highway thing. I mean, I've got to say, trying to remember, it all has happened so quickly. But um, yes, I, I did. The... I did kind of wonder whether we'd ever get back to Zahawi because it did strike me that, um, you know, there was a lot of uh, there's a lot of stuff getting announced to try to do the classic Tory yeah. thing of distracting. Um, you know, there's there's Boris yet to appear before the Covid committee and Boris and all sorts of other trouble. And then suddenly he reports that he got a threatening phone call from, um, you know, President Putin. Oh, you know, there he is. Yeah, at least it proves he hasn't been abducted by an alien because, you know, that's the classic way to try to. As soon as you see a kind of story like that, you should look behind you. You know, they say that thing about shake, shake hands with you know, some sort of fraudster, you should count your fingers. Well, as soon as you hear a light story emanating from, you know, not being threatened with whatever by putting his light, but, you know, as something like that, an offbeat story, you've got to assume something big's happening in the background. But Sahawi, yeah, I mean, you you know, you go go through all of this, everyone will have heard all the sort of protestations and, you know, the sort of now attempt by Sunak to sound like he was decisive and everything. Well, you know, I mean, who knows if the the civil service will continue to it looks like he he has now managed to, by sacking him, stop any further inquiries into his own knowledge or non-knowledge of when things, you know, were known. Um, People will just have, you know, make their own mind up about that. How careful people, you know, I still recall, remember that. That contribution made by the the chair of the um, the public accounts committee, I think, who was just saying that basically the civil service do research this stuff to death, 
And they do put very considerable portfolios forward when people are being considered for ministerial office. And, you know, that to me, that's probably it was probably there. Someone will have to do the legwork to prove it. But, you know, will will that even floor Sunak? I mean, dear knows there's there's so much else going on. But the the, the contagion for him is obviously the, the readover that basically a guy who is himself with his wife thrown in, um, I think a billion, if not a billionaire, then a multimillionaire, didn't really bat an eyelid very probably at somebody having a five million pound tax bill. Yeah. Or uh, realising that part of it was actually a penalty of a or, you know, several million, because that's the kind of world they live in. They are millionaires. You know, this is what happens when you have a party that's full of people who hardly need to be in government, Jeremy Hunt included. You know, why they're why they're in there, apart from the glory, the dogma, you know, the excitement of seeing their ideas about transforming Britain into some sort of little crippled economy that reminds them of the Far East. I mean, why they're doing it, dear only knows, but their ability to have any sense of where the average person is at by even using a, a, an NHS GP, for example, mm-hmm. all of that ought to be, and I think it is, finally getting through to English voters who just think these people are like from starship wealth. You know, they're not living on the same planet as everyone else. And maybe that was acceptable when, you know, the 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 level of grinding poverty people are experiencing was not what it is. But this is like some sort of Marie Antoinette sort of, you know, kind of Versailles that we're seeing now yeah. in London, where they are literally eating cake, although they wouldn't be as daft as doing that because the lean mean, <laughs> I'm ready for it. Look, and Rishi Sunak likes to keep himself trim. But whatever sort of, you know, high protein, um, expensive stuff they are eating, they can keep at that whilst people are dying of cold and being picked up to be taken into overflowing hospitals that haven't got enough staff to, even in a month of Sundays, try to fulfil the ambitions of, that the Tories have announced about trying to fix the National Health Service with 5,000 new beds there, 4,000 yeah. more ambulances there. Do you know all these things need humans it's not the beds that are short, it's the humans. And that bit of it, yeah, the the kind of widgets that they, you know, as they see it, the humans that they regard as widgets, yeah, that wee problem there, that's a biggie. Because if you look around you, then everybody is in uproar, they're on strike, they're getting solidarity together, they're getting a sense of their own worth, they're beginning to develop a narrative that the Labour Party is too frightened to make about the way that multi-millionaires and a a low taxation of high earners has contributed to the current situation. So, yep, you know, that whole thing about Zahawi is just, it's not just this thing of one guy. It stands for absolutely everything that's that's wrong. And I suspect that, you know, in much the same way as uh, the back to basics thing went pretty quickly wrong for John Major, if you go back to the 1992 analogy, um, Rishi Sunak's pr- protestations about kind of integrity will absolutely be be heading south, and and there will doubtless I would have thought there will doubtless be a Labour government at, at, after the next election. Yeah. You know, I I don't quite know really now what is in it for these guys to to remain. 
No, it's, I, I can't fathom them, other than the fact they're going to, they're going to hold on to power as, as long as possible just to, to, to remain in power and keep their fingers crossed there will be a 1992 moment, not a 1997 moment when they get wiped out. And, and it's again to come back to it, that, that it is, you're absolutely right. There's so many things that you said in there that lead on other things to talk about. But this this narrative that I've, I've seen it now being long Boris, as if it's long COVID, that there is some kind of contagion just from the fact that Boris Johnson was Prime Minister, rather than, as you said, being utterly endemic to the current state of the Conservative Party and the way that they view the world and the way that they run the country purely in the interests of a certain segment of society and their ability not only to, to get to get private health care, private education, to opt out of all those social provisions that the rest of the country depends upon, but then to go and get themselves Irish and French passports to skip the effects of Brexit, as you say, to transfer their money elsewhere. But but Zahawi's resignation letter was an absolute stunner as well. Mm. I don't know if you noticed that, because you spoke about Dan Nidal before, the, the tax expert who exposed the tax scandal, um, because he was hit with a, a slap order because Zahawi said uh, he was concerned about the conduct from some of the fourth estate in recent weeks. Now, these slap orders that, that, that go out there are against public uh, lawsuits, against public prosecution. They're intimidating. They're absolutely designed to stop people like Dan Nidal, who happen to have a significant legal team backing him on this, to stop investigative journalists and to stop people exposing these matters because it subjects you to the potential of a, a defence uh, lawsuit that you're going to have to fund. And it is being used continually by the powerful and the, the ultra-wealthy. I mean, apparently the, the Solicitor's Regulatory Authority said there are 40 outstanding similar cases like this that they've exposed. Now, Dominic Raab last summer said there was going to be a crack down on this. He was going to crack down on this. Uh, you can hear the wind rustling through the streets of that uh, western town and the tumbleweed. Nothing has happened. And as I say, Zahawi used it with his uh, solicitors, Osman Clark, to try and stop this whole thing being exposed. And what Zahawi does, doesn't issue an apology, and he blames journalists for exposing the wrongdoing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, it's pretty par for the course. I mean, I suppose it all moves on now to dominate Rab, you know, to sort of see how his bullying inquiry goes. And, yeah, oh, oh. And, but, you know. <laughs> but we're all snowflakes. No, no, that's Jacob Rees-Mogg, our pal Jacob Rees-Mogg. All this thing to do with bullying. Yeah, it's all snowflakey. Yeah, well, you're the man that actually tootled your way around northeast East with your nanny to take care of you because you were scared of what was going to happen, Jacob. So then he talked to me about bullying. You've never been in a position as people have been in the workplace to be subjected to continuous long-term harassment and bullying and undermining of self-confidence that actually strikes at the heart of people and, mm -hmm. and makes them go off help. So, yes, yes, Jacob. Oh, and he's not escaped this, by the way, Sunak, because the National revealed today that the Tory treasurer, Graham Edwards, a property tycoon, who gave, I think it was nearly a million quid to the Tory party since 29, to issues the tax avoidance scheme. They've only tried to reduce tax by five million, and their chief executive, Stephen Massey, still works for a firm that provides. Remember these these sneaky ways that all these people got involved in investing money in inverted commas movie projects. So yeah, it's it's there, it's there, and it's constant. But talking about working people, there we had it last night by a significant vote, three fifteen to two forty six. 
the minimum service levels uh, came into being. And the business minister, now here's one of these things, Leslie. Have you ever heard of Kevin Hollenrake? You know, no. he's, he's the business minister. He said that we're proportionate and sensible. And Grant Sharps has been banging on about the fact that they have these right across Europe. These are the strikes. This is basically the strikes yeah, that yeah. Yeah, try to clamp down on people, met yeah. most of which unions have actually got local agreements. But yes. now you need to have, that's not good enough. You need to have sort of a national minimum standards agreement um, before. The, yeah, so that's what that bill's about. Yeah, well, I mean, it's an interesting one because the uh, what what they've actually said is they're going to they said it's very likely they've gotten France and Italy and Spain and all these things. And I love the comment. I mean, there's been very diplomatic comments, but Pablo Sanchez Centelas of the European Federation of Public Service Unions, when he was presented with the fact that just like what happens, he just said it's bollocks. That was his reply, because what happens there is that the UK government said they're going to consult on these minimum service agreements, many of which, as you said, already exist in on the continent. They've actually got to negotiate these with the trade unions. It's a cooperative agreement on minimum service levels. And you find right across the public sector is that people want to continue to have these minimum service levels, levels in these specific industries that are so public safety is dependent upon. Mm-hmm. And. Our friend Jacob Rees-Mogg's actually even said it's full of holes. It contains, and you'll remember this when it goes back to the Brexit debate, it's got a Henry VIII clause in it. And what this allows is, even though it's passed this legislation, this has allowed ministers to amend the legislation after it's become law without full parliamentary scrutiny. So they can put it through, it's gone through, and they can change it and amend it any time they like. And all of this is based upon the fact that the UK already has the most uh, draconian uh, strike legislation in in Europe because there is no fundamental right to strike in the UK. They've got it in France, Germany, Spain, Italy, and it's got all these hurdles to jump. So it's gone through. And uh, I discovered at that point that the lynches are are right across this because then Esther Lynch, the General Secretary of the European Trade Union Confederation, says there's no comparison to be made between that system of social dialogue and the political conflict the UK government is stoking over public sector play. I've no idea if she's related to Mick Lynch, but well done that other Lynch, Esther. Yeah, but then this is this is the thing when you start, you know, the, when you, you start to make contrasts uh, or comparisons most most countries that sort of keep coming back to it, but that ha- actually got rid of things like first past the post a century voting a century ago, have yeah. that just is not just confined. You know, that's not just removing the combative artificial creation of sides and, you know, punch and duty sort of politics from the ballot box. That is usually both a reflection of changes within industrial relations. Yes. And indeed in turn affects industrial relations like a society moves forward in ways where it doesn't expect to batter each other or the heed and just see who basically is left standing at the end of it. And I notice, you know, when people have been trying to, uh, you know, interview some of the the uh, the big figures from the European unions debating, you know, the side during the Brexit debates to try to sort of, you know, spark up a, a kind of programme. And invariably, they just can't get a line out of them at all because they they are born to compromise. You know, yes, they are born to be cooperative and not to leave any hostages to fortune in anything they say. 
British politicians, particularly Tories, are born to conflict. They're born to create uh, to, to, to create sides. They're, and they're born into culture wars, if you want to put it that way. And industrial relations is the casualty because, the, you know, the idea of compromise is just compromises is for is for weeds. Yes. And yet the, the world only works well when people essentially are working in teams. And I mean, I well remember the the fire, the farming strike way back, gosh, in the 90s. And the fuss that was made then by the the um, essentially the employers about cover during those strikes and the elaborate nature of the efforts that the the the, the fire the firemen had gone in to to be able to provide all the time was it the, was it the green goddesses green that were standby yes. you know so that it's it's like nearly every union has got contingencies and doesn't you know would not walk out and just leave wards empty fire engines unstaffed completely you know people th- th- these things have been taken care of again the tories are utterly merciless and shameless at trying to take the tiny fragment of something that sounds like these are careless people who don't care if you live or die and the reason that they're pushing that kind of line with that legislation is because the public support the strikers yes you know, this is where all analogies with all previous decades ends because there was always they could easily whip up a sort of, you know, kind of labor in the hawk to the unions and the unions are union barons and all this kind of stuff. Now, you, we could debate this kind of yes. unions running the Labour Party, but but still people can translate that very, very quickly because they know folk and they also went through COVID and they know their own situation and they are not stupid. They can extrapolate completely from where they're standing to where the other chills stand in. And that is re-establishing solidarity at its most basic level. So a lot of this just doesn't cut muster. And this is their attempt to put back in this stake into, you know, drive it into the side of industrial relations, which we've already heard are being crippled by their own damage to the economy of their own vanity projects like Brexit. I mean, if this was actually characterized as a sort of murder mystery drama or something you would just marvel at the gratuitous cruelty of the perpetrator you wouldn't believe it was possible and that's what's going on with with the economy and our industrial relations so but but all you can say is the more that they are trying to pile on this kind of you know these people are are heartless bams that will leave folk dying just to kind of go out and try and earn an extra couple of quid that really isn't cutting it um and and it's actually empowering the unions i would have thought and empowering the people who are out on strike so you know they're playing with fire in all sorts of respects yes because this this isn't this isn't a rerun of the of the miners' strike. Uh, this is very different uh, conditions, uh, and I, I think they they've completely misjudged the, the the public mood. And I think you're absolutely right. It does go back to the the realization, I mean, of the fact of the dependency that we have on public sector workers, in in terms of our health, in terms of our safety, in terms of making a society that's worthwhile living in, in terms of education and health and transport. And environmental services. I mean, you know, it's it's there. Meanwhile, 
the latest Scottish opinion polls about Leslie I saw it, the SNF for Westminster voting intentions and I thought it was an interesting comparison I'll just go through because the uh, the SNP 43% Labour 29% up 10 Conservatives 18% mine down 7 Lib Dems 7% down three percent so it would appear that the Labour Party is gaining the getting momentum within that framework as the the, the party of the union but at that it stands and I think it's three percent other so that stands in terms of its de facto referendum 46 percent yes 54 percent no yet when you actually examine find out now which is the latest opinion poll yes uh, it including don't knows is at 50, 52%, which is up one, no is at 44%, and down one. And when you exclude the don't knows, 54% yes, 46% no. And it does bring it to, into relief that, that whole thing, even though it's at this stage now and we, we don't know when there will be a general election, I wouldn't rule one out this year, given the, the state that the Conservative Party is in, the, the 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 plan to have it as a de facto referendum, which is the only thing we've got left to us, is still is still a gamble for the, the Scottish government, and one which goes back to the point you were making earlier that don't wait for anybody to fire the starting gun, but someone somewhere within the the, the SNP does actually have to say this is it, we are going for it, and fires the starting gun, even though we've already started. Yeah, I mean. It's... They, obviously, they'll have their conference. I forget what date it is. Um, yeah. You know, I, there's been some complaint about the level of choice that people can actually have within that. But, um, you know, once there's an outcome from that, to be honest, then that that has got to be the starting yeah. gun fired. Um, and the point is, in anticipation of that, because there's got to be, you know, you can't come out of that really and just kind of shilly shally. Oh, well, you know, a big boy did it and ran away. We're not too sure what we're up to. And, <laughs> you know, we'll have yet another commission to look. At. There's just there's no you've got to come out with a decision on this one. Um, so in anticipation of that, you know, we're now in the run up to that. Uh, just with regard to the, the events that that I've been involved with, you don't get a second shot at them. You know, the Supreme Court verdict happened that day. Brexit anniversary happens today. If you don't make it um, something, then um, it, it doesn't you can't. It's not so easy to tag that stuff in later. You've got to basically hammer these <laughs> events to yeah. the wall with a narrative because we're in the run up to doing something. So, yeah, the the official starting gun will will absolutely, I would imagine, have to happen in March. But. Fuck ends, you know, I'm not in the SNP. I'm not going to be at the conference. I don't know what is in the mind of Nicola Sturgeon, although quite obviously she has got other fish to fry. Yes, which brings us on to the the, the issues concerning the, the, the stop that's being put on the transfer of transgender prisoners, uh, male to female transgender prisoners into female prisons, which which did, I mean, I, when I was looking at the legislation that was put through, I genuinely could not see the problem with stating clearly in the legislation that a, a transgender prisoner, which would be male to female, who had committed a sexual offence, should not be placed in a female prison. I just, the logic escaped me why it had to be left to the Scottish Prison Service to make a decision on a case-to-case -case basis. To me, that should have been a blanket ban. If you've been convicted of sexual violence, you should not be transferred to a women's prison. 
Well, I mean, I, again, I have, I, again, have not done because I've been flat out doing all this yeah. organization for today and trying to cope with having a terrible attack of sciatica out of nowhere. I don't know quite what I did, but my God, I have now just got such sympathy for anyone who's got this and is actually managing to keep going in a day job because it is agonizing at times and, and you can hardly concentrate. But anyway, um, there was one of the amendments that could have been accepted uh, yes. to the Gender Re- Reform Re- Recognition Reform Act um, was suggesting that anybody who is on the sex of offenders register, which would be anybody convicted of a sexual cl- crime like this, um, sh- should should not have access to the provisions of the Act. Um, now, you'd have to say that the, 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 the thing about that is, I mean, on the one hand, the Act, as we know, is being contested and isn't law yet. So nothing that's happened with regarding to the, to the prisons yeah. is the result of anything to do with gender. Ref- re- keep getting it wrong, the GRR. But it, it absolutely is. The problem has been highlighted. And there was a um, an interview with Nicola Sturgeon by Peter Smith from ITN, where he basically just hammered away at just the logic underpinning what you then do. I mean, for example, could a trans man, which is a yeah. biological woman who wants to identify as a man, could that trans man be housed um, in a man's prison? So that's somebody who physically is a woman. And would that be OK then? Would they automatically be put into a man's prison? And if that isn't going to happen, because that would be kind of tough, yes. um, then is a trans man a man? And the thing is, he he went, he badgered away at the logic of that. Because it works both ways. It's the same thing as if a trans woman is a woman, then why isn't she in a woman's jail? Whatever she's done. Um, so that 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 definitely this pushes a very strong wedge into the difficulty of trying to overlook what people what people's biological state prior to them deciding to change actually means in terms of them as a human and how you can trust them and what they're likely to do and who they are even. Yeah. Um. But it's 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 a very, very difficult one. And watching Nicola Sturgeon, I see quite a few people comments online. It was the most I mean, she's normally a very consummate performer, but she oh, did yeah. absolutely look utterly, you know, stuck with that one. The trouble is, once you do begin to um, open up the the rights that trans people have, you absolutely walk into a territory where you're not going to find very easy answers to very much of this. And I this is not to defend a situation that we've gone through here where we have essentially a rapist in a woman's prison temporarily and then removed. And it was a Scottish prison servant. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And just while we're at it, the UK government just quietly had exactly the same situation. And a, a hundreds, I think it was 300 trans prisoners at, at the moment, um, which they have decided just in in the in the in the shade of the Scottish government coming out with this. Uh, ban on trans prisoners uh, being in convicted of sexual offences being housed in a essentially woman's jail. Um, the British government has quietly passed um, a, a kind of guidelines to prisons on exactly the same lines. Yes. So it's not that it's particular to anybody. Everybody's sitting struggling with this. Can you end up with a trans only unit somewhere? That's well, yeah. possibly you can. Um, <clears throat> in that case, particularly the British government would end up having to spend more on prisons per head of that, you know, to, to deal with that issue than they do in any other regard. 
prisons are over, absolutely overcrowded. Um, you know, there's underspending south of the border, there's private jails. Just look at all the kind of problems that there are with with within prisons. And it would be great. Yeah, it would be great probably to have these units. Um, and that might be what's going to have to happen. Um, but it's not an easy path to follow. No. And everybody is trying to work through both trying to keep the ability for trans people to be treated with respect Absolutely. and then trying to safeguard against people basically having a laugh. Yes, yes. And that's precisely it, because what we're dealing with, we're dealing with here are predatory males. And that's that's exactly what it is. Moving, moving on from that, I mean, it, it, it's, it seems I, I've got to, I've got, I was going to make an apology for something I said last week, Leslie, which was that Scotch bonnet was a variety of mushroom. And I was, I mean, it was, I, I, I just, just to give you an insight here, I actually had to say to Leslie at one point, yes, when she sent me the, the second or third email with somebody had corrected me, they saying, no, it's a variety of chilli pepper, which is uh, native to West Africa and the Caribbean, and it's called that because it's supposed to resemblance to a tam shanta. And yes, and I got contacted, and it was on Twitter as well, and there was, and I kept saying, every day is a learning day. Well, every day is a learning day, folks, because Ed didn't think it was wrong. And it wasn't. It's also a mushroom. <laughs> Marismius oriades. It's a super edible mushroom which is found in fairy rings. So, and it's, it's, it says it's a champignon. And that leads me, as I say, with a. So both of us were right. So mea, my mea culpa, mea culpa, mea maxima culpa has been withdrawn. But it, it leads me to a, a daft thing that just shows about the nature of friendship and champignons. I went to a Scotland-France rugby match with two of my pals, Sean McPartland and Jeff Jacobs from Glasgow. Jeff, a lovely lad, was doing dentistry. And Sean and I, who were his two pals, allowed him throughout the whole match, in the midst of umpteen French supporters, to chant, nous sommes les champignons, throughout the whole thing. And we allowed him to chant, we are the mushrooms, <laughs> in the midst of oh. this rugby match. <laughs> We think Sorry, he was saying we were the champions. Oh, I yeah. see. Right. I thought it was even companions, but right, yeah. No, no we are the mushrooms <laughs> is what he was chanting right throughout the whole thing. Yeah, um, that would and be churlish the, to the, correct him in the middle the, of a the chant. Two, well, we let him do that to the, to, the, to the astonishment of the French folk around us. Well, all I've got to say is the weather has definitely calmed down here, Leslie. The, the winds have disappeared. The sun is shining. It has set fair. I would think for the procession this evening, meeting at five o'clock at public halls of residence, and good luck tonight, and we'll see you next week, chaps.